From the Las Vegas Review-Journal studio, welcome to Season 3, Episode 5 of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, presented by Pro Group Management. Additional sponsorship provided by the Golden Steer. John Katzlamitis here. Before listening, please know this podcast contains explicit content such as strong language and depictions of violence, including murder. Please be advised this podcast might not be suitable for all audiences. It's a sunny day in 1997 beyond the city limits in the desert outside of Las Vegas. Just before the sun begins to set, a then 58-year-old Oscar Goodman is sporting his square glasses, black-fitted suit with white button-down shirt and yellow tie. Goodman gets out of his dark Mercedes to approach another man in his 40s who has just arrived. That man is former FBI agent Rick Bacon. He is getting out of his white, open-top Chrysler Sebring. Bacon is also in a dark suit, which shows that both men mean business. They shake hands briefly. That is the last kindness either will show during this exchange decades in the making. Rick, I've been waiting 20 years for this. 20 years to have you apologize to me. <laughs> Every day of my life, Rick. Uh-huh. All I think about is when you came into my office and you tried to set me up, you tried to frame me, you tried to entrap me, but I want you to apologize. You know what, I'll tell you what, Oscar. I know some of the friends, some of the same people that you know, and they told me that that's been a thorn in your saddle for 20 years. For 20 years, I can't forget about it. And you know, that's probably one of, one of the best pleasures in life for me, is to know that for 20 years, you knew that you actually were caught. Part 5. The meeting between Oscar Goodman and Rick Bacon was caught on camera for the documentary Mob Law. A short excerpt from the 90-minute film can be seen running in the Mob Museum today as it shows a rare moment in history when Goodman came face-to-face with one of his adversaries. To understand the confrontation between Goodman and Bacon, we need to take it back a bit. In our second episode this season, we mentioned how influential the relationship between Goodman and Tony Spilatro was. It was Spilatro who helped set Goodman up for success within the Mob and helped make Goodman's reputation known around the country. But it could also be said that the relationship made Goodman live a life even more under the microscope as it put Goodman's often unorthodox methods into question. The FBI has said they didn't like your tactics. uh, My tactics was to go to court and uh, try to protect my client's constitutional rights and stop them from uh, engaging in prosecutorial misconduct. And you've you've been, of course, extremely outspoken about flipping about about rats. Yeah, well, as as far as I'm concerned. I've, I've seen the way they handle these guys. It, it spawns perjury. Uh, they, they say to them, now, you, we'll let you have a pass here if you will do this or do that, if you will testify the, the way we want you to. Goodman knew the FBI was tracking his every move in an effort to get Spilatro, but Goodman found ways to work around communicating with his client in confidence. You get used to doing things certain ways, and uh, that's the way we did it, that's all. <laughs> and with Tony, when I would meet with him, because we knew all the electronic surveillance that was taking place uh, by the FBI and Metro uh, of him and his family, and at the Gold Rush, which was uh, the jewelry store mm-hmm. that he owned, 
uh, we wouldn't even uh, talk inside because we knew for a fact, I'm not making these things up, we found the stuff, we found the bugs. How many incidents were that where you actually found? I mean, are you talking about exposed wires? Or are you talking about yeah. stuff that's placed inside? No, uh, placed inside, uh, all uh, different kinds of parabolic mics out of the Sahara Hotel, uh -huh. keying in on people who were talking that they were able to, to, to get. The airplane that flew over the Las Vegas Country Club that uh, ran out of gasoline and crashed into the pond there. Right. They were there for surveillance purposes. And uh, at the gold rush, we actually found uh, bugs uh, that were live. And of, of course, uh, there was joy in Mudville uh, when they found the bugs and said, we got your bugs, we got your bugs. And they're listening, the FBI is listening. So they, they got a, a kick out of that. But um, uh, it got to a point where Bellaccio and myself, and I'm talking about attorney-client conversations on serious cases, I mean, murder cases, where uh, they were listening to what we're talking about we had to go over to Hadland Park, and we're walking around the park uh, so that uh, they can't record us. With Goodman making it more challenging for the FBI to try and get anything on Tony and his other clients, Goodman recalls a time when investigators took it a step further during his daughter's bat mitzvah in Las Vegas. My daughter, she was the princess, and she wasn't. Uh, she said, "Dad." Uh, uh, I'm not going to have a party in a hotel casino. I said, why? She said, because now, Mr. Cusimano, who was an associate of Mr. Spilaccio's and a client of mine, and Mr. Spilaccio aren't able to come and they're always so nice to me and be like slapping them in their face. So I said, what do you want me to do? She said, let's go someplace else. And it was great. She chose the uh, um, the inn up in uh, Mount Charleston. Yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, I invited judges, senators, athletes, uh, lawyers, good guys, and they're all driving up that hill to uh, Mount Charleston. And at the bottom of the hill, uh, the FBI is there uh, taking down license plate numbers. And a lot of these cars turned around and went the other way. And uh, all I said to myself, they're schmucks. And uh, they missed a good party. It's intimidation, intimidation tactic it mostly? Or they, 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 what do they do with they this information? I mean, they harass people. I had uh, lawyers uh, who worked around me. They didn't do it to me, but uh, they would stop the lawyers who were driving their car with whom Tony was associated and give them tickets, put them in a, a hooskow, uh, and for doing nothing and trying to intimidate them. As the FBI continued to look for any way possible to get to Goodman's long list of high-profile clientele, they turned to an undercover agent by the name of Rick Bacon. The goal was to get information that could put members of the mob away for life. Rick Bacon took on many identities as part of his undercover personas during his time with the FBI. At the time he was tasked with getting information on Spilatro, Bacon had been in the FBI about eight years. He used the name Rick Calise in mob circles. Bacon gained Spilatro's confidence and posed as a potential supplier for Spilatro's jewelry enterprises. One night, the FBI coordinated a raid to try and gather some evidence on Spilatro. To keep his undercover persona going, Bacon told Spilatro the FBI also searched his apartment and got evidence. Spilatro wanted to keep Bacon out of jail and be protected, so he urged Bacon to seek counsel from someone he trusted immensely. Well, uh, Spilaccio brought him into my office and he yeah. said, Oscar, this guy needs a lawyer. The FBI is telling him that uh, I'm going to kill him if he doesn't cooperate with the FBI. And the FBI said that uh, 
They'll protect him if he testifies against Bellagio. So it was a conflict of interest. And I referred him to three of the uh, best lawyers in Los Angeles because it would have been a conflict mm -hmm. of interest. And you know, when Tony Spilaccio sat him down at my office, Tony was not a choir boy. I don't mean to, I don't want anyone to have that impression, but he grabbed him by the arm and he has, he said, sit down. And he said, Oscar, tell him what you're gonna do. I said, I'm not gonna do anything, Tony. Tony, I had never had that kind of a relationship with Tony where I told Tony what to do. I said, I'm not doing it. He says, why? Uh, he says, uh, you have to do it. Look what they're trying to do to me. I said, well, he's gonna have to have another lawyer do it or else they're gonna knock me out of your case based on the conflict. Goodman referred Bacon to three other attorneys who could help him. As soon as Bacon left the office with Spilatro, Goodman received a call from the FBI chief in Las Vegas, revealing that Rick Calise was actually Rick Bacon, an undercover agent. By telling Oscar the truth, the FBI hoped he would help protect Bacon from Spilatro or anyone else. This FBI agent said that he infiltrated Tony's life and uh, was with him all the time. You would figure if Tony's doing anything wrong and uh, if he's killing 27 people, that this guy would have an inkling of it and they would arrest him. Uh, but no, instead they tried to set him up uh, through me. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, and then uh, when I, I was told that they did this, I went bonkers. And uh, they, they called me over to the FBI office and I finally went over there and they said, we want you to know that the man sitting here is not an informant, he's an FBI agent acting in an undercover capacity, and he was just in your office. I said, I know he was in my office. I said, I hope he was wired. And he, he said, if anything happens to this guy, uh, we're going to hold you responsible. I said, hold me responsible? I'm an insurance agent uh, for the FBI now? I, I use an expletive. Longtime Las Vegas attorney Stan Hunterton recalls the general feelings of FBI agents towards Goodman at the time. I remember asking an FBI agent, I hadn't been in town too long, but I'd been here long enough to know who Oscar was and who all the other major players were. And uh, he said, uh, tell me what you know about this guy, Oscar. And the agent, who sadly is no longer with us, described Oscar the way you might expect an FBI agent to describe Oscar in a very strong language, which I won't repeat here, but uh, I obviously didn't like Oscar. Bacon and Goodman didn't meet again until 20 years later, that day beyond the city limits of Las Vegas. Goodman was hoping for an apology from Bacon for accusing him of obstructing justice in representing Spilatro and trying to entrap Goodman. That didn't happen. Instead, the two men argued over who was on the right side of the law. They drove away with no resolution, a disagreement that continues to this day. Goodman would often refer back to the operation with ridicule, including once crediting Bacon's undercover success to having a non-distinct face, a wallflower demeanor, and a very blah personality. Their feud, now more than 40 years old, is still a point of contention for Oscar who many openly speculated might have been more of a high-ranking advisor in the mob rather than just an attorney. You know, everybody thinks uh, that I was a consigliere and that uh, if someone was going to get killed here, they had to get my permission in order to kill them. You want to know something? I let them think it. Why did you do that? Why? I hope they were scared of me.
There's more coming up when Mobbed Up, the fight for Las Vegas, continues after this. Can't get enough of the intrigue, drama, and excitement behind the history of Las Vegas? Live it by dining at the Golden Steer Steakhouse, the oldest steakhouse in Las Vegas and an old haunt of Tony Spilatro's. You know, the guy from the podcast you're listening to. The Golden Steer has been serving up famous and infamous customers since 1958, from mobsters to the Rat Pack, Muhammad Ali to Holly Madison. Enjoy this classic experience in person or try their world-famous best steaks on earth in the comfort of your own home by ordering today at goldensteerlasvegas.com. After the sting attempt by Rick Bacon, there were members of law enforcement on both the local and federal levels who believed strongly that Oscar was more than just a defense attorney for the mob. They felt he was somehow more ingrained in the daily business. Bacon even claimed that Tony Spilatro often referred to Oscar Goodman as Mr. O, framing him as a higher ranking authority than what he projected. Oscar maintains the witch hunt against him by the FBI continued for years. Let me tell you about the nice FBI. Let me tell you why I love the FBI. The FBI took my car and they placed it in an outdoor lot, in a parking lot, and the car rusted and rotted. And when I won, they said, here's your car. Okay, that's the kind of people that I was dealing with. And I wanna know who the good guys were or who the bad guys were. And as far as I'm concerned, I said it before, I'll say it again. I've never been involved in a situation in court where the FBI hasn't lied or cheated. From time to time, reporters also got caught up in the conflict between Goodman and the FBI. Las Vegas Review Journal columnist Jane Ann Morrison describes an incident where Goodman felt the FBI was giving information to reporters unethically. There was one story that you may not be aware of. Just before Spilatro was indicted, Oscar Goodman subpoenaed five journalists who all reported that Anthony Spilatro was about to be indicted. I was one of those five. He argued that the, that the journalists needed to take the stand and reveal the source of those news accounts. Judge Claiborne was the judge hearing the motion that would have required us to testify. And uh, even though they were friends, Claiborne threw it out immediately. You know, he was not going to take on five journalists in, in Las Vegas to force them to. I mean, that would have made national news. And, uh, it, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't have told anyway, but it would have been a dog and ponies show. And that's what it was. You know, we, we got the motion. We all had to show up. We had to hire. We hired Mark Galane, one of the prominent civil attorneys of the time. Uh, he argued it. And Harry Claiborne didn't take long to throw it out. It wasn't at that time, but it was like a day or two later that he threw it out and he said that there was no evidence of impropriety between FBI agents and reporters. Mob Museum Vice President of Exhibits and Programs Jeff Schumacher sheds light on the feud between Goodman and government officials. I think that he was such an, an adversary for law enforcement that they became incredibly frustrated by him. And, and wanted to try to expose what they believed to be his dishonesty or his collusion with the mob. They never did successfully do that, and I don't believe. And, and you know, certainly not in court. Um, Oscar's record uh, as a defense attorney uh, uh, for the mob suggests that he did exactly what a defense attorney is supposed to do. He represented his clients vigorously to and within the, within the law. Now, do I know what's in the, the, the darkest corners of Oscar's background when it comes to interacting with these individuals? I do not. But what I do know is that 
he insists repeatedly and consistently that he made a lot of money from the mob, from defending the mob. He freely admits that. And he, he understands that these individuals may or may not have committed some heinous crimes. But he looks at this very much through this philosophical lens, which is you know certainly part and parcel of the American system, which is we everybody's entitled to a defense and everybody's entitled to a good defense. So his mission in his life was to provide a good defense. Are there a few occasions where there was a gray area and you know that maybe the mob guys wanted him to cross the line and, and there was a temptation there and he and but he didn't do it or other occasions where in hindsight he's like I wish I hadn't done that perhaps with the government depending more on wiretaps one 1990 case gave the government a leg up on claims Oscar had been making for years that the mafia didn't exist it could be seen as a hit to Goodman's credibility having defended so many clients in the mob up to that point at the time, he was representing Boston mobster Finney the Animal Ferrara. Ferrara was indicted in a racketeering case that also included several murders. The prosecution would go on to win, but the case was later overturned because of clear prosecutorial misconduct. Ferrara and his co-defendants, including J.R. Russo, had been picked up on an FBI tape conducting a mafia induction ceremony, which is when an associate is turned into a made man. A made man means that by taking the loyalty oath, your body and soul are now owned by the Mafia family. You are joining a new family that takes a higher priority than your wife, children, or anybody or anything else. If the Mafia boss orders you to kill your son or daughter, you have to do it. The feds had gotten a tip from an informant and had hidden bugs in a home in Medford, Massachusetts. It was the first time a secret initiation ceremony had ever been recorded and gave the government concrete proof to throw back in Goodman's face. I get a phone call from a fellow by the name of Jeff Auerhan, who has to be one of the biggest pieces of crap who ever lived. He was a U.S. attorney up in Boston, and uh, he should have lost his license a long time ago. Oh, we got you, Goodman. I said, you got me? How did you get me? Uh, we've recorded a mafia induction ceremony. Uh, apparently, Vinny was hmm. uh, with a group of guys in a basement up at uh, Medford, Massachusetts, near Tufts University. And uh, the government came in, put a bug in the place, and they had a mafia induction ceremony. And uh, they went through the whole thing, and they called up. They were, they were so happy, so happy that uh, they, were, they, they were happy they could call me and say that I could no longer deny the mafia existing, more so than... Getting evidence against my client—it was incredible. That was the big thing was oh, getting was the recorded ceremony. Um, had a great judge uh, up in Boston, Mark Wolf. He was on the shortlist for the Supreme Court of the United States, and I'm not going to tell you he liked me. Most judges didn't care for me. Judge called me in. He said, uh, "Mr. Goodman, uh, this is your last chance, really. I'm, I'm going to let this tape in unless you can show me something, uh, and uh, it's not going to be the easiest case to win." I said, well, my client said that they didn't murder. There were three murders in the case. And uh, they said they didn't murder uh, anybody. They may have done some other things, but I can't ask him to plead guilty. He said, well, why don't you go and talk to him? And I said, fellas, I said, I got a tough one here. I said, um, I could win the kidnapping. When I say I could win, my best judgment is I think I could win. I could win the robbery. I could uh, win uh, the uh, stolen uh, fish. I could win the stolen cheese. I said, but that mafia induction ceremony, it, it's brutal. 
Mm-hmm. I said, guys, here you are. You're doing everything that every movie portrays uh, is uh, w- what they do. You're in this room. Everyone's uh, picking their table. They're all pouring wine. And you say, give me your finger. And they, you prick the finger. And you take the blood and you put it on a napkin uh, on a, a card. Then you burn the card. I said, I, you know, I, I think I could even win with that. But I said, that thing about um, if we call you uh, to do the bidding of our group here, will you do it? And everybody raises their hand. We'll do it. And um, if your mother is on her deathbed and uh, we ask uh, you to leave your mother in order to do the bidding, would you do that? And they all say yes. And I said, that, that, I can't overcome that, fellas. So <laughs> Jay Hart says to Vinny, Vinny, next time leave that line out. There's more coming up when Mobbed Up, the fight for Las Vegas, continues after this. Ferrara and four others pled guilty to various charges under deals that spared them even longer sentences. Ferrara was originally set to face life in prison, but at the Council of Goodman, he took a deal and was sentenced to 22 years after pleading guilty to charges including racketeering, gambling, extortion, and ordering a murder. After decades spent representing clients notorious in the mob and even defending himself against government officials, the pressure could be seen as insurmountable always in the public eye, always facing ridicule. But none of it fazed Goodman. But that's the kind of pressure that most lawyers, number one, wouldn't want. Uh, I I thrived on it. I loved it because I was involved at the cutting edge of all the new cases, all the new laws, all the new wiretap laws, the RICO laws. And uh, it gave me an opportunity to really be against the very best that Washington had to send out here. Uh, to try to get my clients from other parts of the country. So I loved each and every day, and I'll tell you one thing, I'm a lot tougher than I look. His long and successful career in the courtroom was about to take a turn as Goodman set his sights on running one of the most famous cities in the U.S., taking on a position with even more visibility as mayor of Las Vegas. On part six of Mobbed Up, the fight for Las Vegas, the stakes are raised as Goodman takes office as the mayor of Las Vegas. I was just going down to the office every morning and seeing how much money I could earn, and that wasn't me. It wasn't, not that it wasn't challenging, but I was beginning not to like myself. So I figured this was a good way to do something different. He addresses some long-standing rumors. I didn't have any friends to speak of because I didn't know whether the person I'm speaking to was going to be wired or not, whether they were going to be an FBI undercover agent or somebody who was later going to become an informant for the government, a la Colada, and uh, uh, make up stories. And has being the mouthpiece for the mob contributed to these threats? You know, people in other cities might wonder why Las Vegas would elect a mob mayor, the mouthpiece for the mob. And the reality is uh, he was an important part of old Las Vegas. This has been Part 5, Season 3 of Mobbed Up, a production of the Las Vegas Review-Journal in partnership with the Mob Museum. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Be sure to leave us a rating or review. Production staff includes managing editor Anastasia Hendricks, 
Producer, Carrie Roper. Field and studio production by Larry Muir. Sound design and mix by Greg Conway. Special thanks to Oscar's Steakhouse in downtown Las Vegas at the Plaza for hosting us on site. And our guests, Jeff Schumacher, Jane Ann Morrison, and Stan Hunterton. To learn more about Mobbed Up, visit lvrj.com backslash podcasts. I'm Review Journal columnist John Katzlamitis. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you on the next episode.